0: You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Each year, starting about mid-November, a particular season starts in China. It's not based on any tradition, religion or historical event. It's based on climate. This is the sound of coal being shoveled into a stove in Heilongjiang province, In this household, like so many others, the stove is also the heater. Mid-November marks the start of the heating season in northern China, when centralized heating systems are switched on to provide heat to residential homes. This year, eight provinces and regions in northwest and northeast China have started their heating season two weeks earlier than normal. Winter isn't coming it's here and the temperatures are dropping. Now the smell and taste of burning coal in winter is for many people synonymous with the city of Beijing itself.
1: I first arrived in Beijing, my first study abroad in China, 11 years ago. And that was my first impression. It was the winter heating season and I was walking around the streets in Beijing and you can smell it in every little side alley. This kind of, I mean, it smells like burning coal, right? It's not a great smell, but it's the smell of, it's a it reminds me of my first time being in Beijing and I, I just got used to the smell and associated that smell with, with Beijing in the winter. And anytime I smell that now, it's, it's just very nostalgic for me. It's a terrible thing to be nostalgic for. It's a very dirty thing to be nostalgic for, but I do, I do miss it.
0: That's David Fishman. He's an expert on renewable energy in China. You're going to hear more from him in a few minutes. But this year's heating season is underway, as China deals with a much bigger crisis. The world's largest consumer of coal is running short on coal. And this is causing interruptions and shortages in the supply of electricity to the factories and workshops that manufacture goods exported to the world as well as the steel and concrete that builds China's cities and infrastructure. And of course, the lights, heating and cooking in the homes of tens of millions of people. And all of this is raising the stakes even higher for what is being described as the most crucial international meeting on climate change in world history. Welcome to a special COP26 edition of Inside China. My name is Holly Chick, talking to you from the newsroom of the South China Morning Post here in Hong Kong. If you look at reporting about China's economic growth and its ageing population, very often you'll read a variation on these words. China has to grow rich before it gets old. Now, it's being faced with a challenge years in the making, Complicated by massive natural disasters, an ongoing pandemic, and a geopolitical storm partly of its own making. Can China grow rich without using coal? In this episode, you're going to hear from people who spend their days analyzing China's energy transition. But first, a quick recap of why events in Glasgow over the next fortnight will be dominating the news cycle. Every year for the past 25 years, the United Nations Climate Change Conference of the parties has met to discuss how nations can work together to lower emissions and prevent catastrophic climate change. Back in 1992, countries signed a treaty promising to stabilize greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere and prevent dangerous changes to the climate. In 2016, The Paris Agreement was signed. It set out a global framework to avoid dangerous climate change. This next fortnight is being seen as the last chance for the world to come together and save the planet. Last year's meeting was postponed due to the pandemic, but now the meeting everyone's calling COP26 is attracting more attention than ever. COP26 looks like it will be a festival of dissent, activism, industry-sponsored idealism, and celebrity-fueled altruism. But at the very heart of the maelstrom will be a meeting of diplomats from nearly 200 countries, all putting forward their plans on how they will cut emissions by the year 2030. Now, this meeting comes six years after the Paris Agreement was signed. It set out a global framework to try and keep the average global temperature rise to 2 degrees Celsius. But all eyes are on the world's largest consumer of coal and the world's largest source of carbon emissions, China. But what you might not know is that in the past few months, in the past few weeks even, there have been more substantial, some might say even revolutionary, changes announced for China's coal-dominated economy with Put Out 2 podcast at the start of this month, looking at China's escalating power crisis. But let me give you a quick recap on the structure and the nature of China's coal-powered crisis right now. Here's how it started. China's economy is a planned economy meaning the government set prices on certain commodities such as electricity. That's a planned economy in action. However, these power generation companies have to buy coal from the world market, which is subject to free market economics. Supply of coal goes up, prices go down. Supply of coal goes down, and demand goes up, prices go up. This year, the price of coal has gone up, and up, and up, thanks to a combination of factors. China mines about half the world's coal, but a combination of fatal accidents and massive floods in one of its largest coal mining regions has closed many of its mines and severely restricted supply. At the same time, the country it normally buys a lot of coal from, Australia, is off the shopping list as Beijing continues its unofficial trade war, which has banned Australian exports, ranging from wine, to lobsters, to cotton, to the estimated 75 million tons of coal it was buying for its steel furnaces, as well as the power stations in the south. Meanwhile, China's massive manufacturing base has continued to shift into high gear as the world's economies transition through the pandemic. Lockdowns have ended and demand for exported goods made in China soars. And oh, do I need to remind you that Christmas is on its way. And China's intention for COP26 have been somewhat clouded by mixed messaging in the lead up to this conference. Xi Jinping is not attending in person. He's going to once again be delivering a speech by Zoom. And Beijing's response to the power crisis has been to announce an increase in building new cold-fire power plants and a planned increase in coal production. In fact, it's been increasing approvals on new coal fire plants since 2019, and there's been 43 new coal fire plants announced so far this year. But the overall goal is to peak and then begin closing them down. In the meantime, Beijing has announced two major steps in its plan to transition its economy from coal. And this is where we introduce you to someone on the other side of the world who's been watching these developments very closely.
2: I live in Norway, but I grew up in China. I lived in Norway for 18 years. This is
0: Yanqing, a carbon market analyst at a company called Refinitiv. She's been analyzing and advising on the European carbon market and its emission trading scheme, the ETS, since 2005. And what's
2: very exciting this July is China, my home country, finally launched a national ETS, a national carbon market. So very similar to the European one that I have been working with. Uh, So that's very uh, exciting. So it is China's national carbon market, um, but the trading venue uh, is in Shanghai. It's hosted by uh, Shanghai uh, Environment Exchange. This covers emissions 4.5 gigatons, so actually that's three times more than European carbon market.
0: Why was Yen so excited? It's because the European ETS has been doing a great job, putting a price on carbon and encouraging a shift
2: towards renewable energy. We have the numbers. Emissions has dropped massively. So European carbon market has driven significant emission reduction in the um, European uh, mostly in European power and industry sector, Uh, so especially in the power sector. Europe has had a 16-year head
0: start. But this July, China's first national emissions trading market opened in Shanghai, and this is what Yan sees in common.
2: So China's new national ETS and the European ETS, they are both uh, emissions trading scheme, or we call them cap and trade, this is different from, there are many types of carbon market, but uh, ETS uh, is what government set, we call it regulated. So government will hand out allowances. So government decides how many companies, what kind of criteria they should be covered. I mean, usually <laughs> power and industry uh, companies, the big emitters and then government hand out three allowances to them and then by every year, Uh, These companies in the carbon markets, they have to surrender enough allowances for their emissions. In Europe, the number of allowances that the government
0: hands out each year declines. So companies will have to either reduce their emissions or buy allowances from others in the market. And this has proved to be really good at reducing emissions. But the situation is a little different on this side of the world. You might call it an ETS with Chinese
2: characteristics. One uh, key difference between China's ETS and EU ETS uh, is that currently China's ETS has an intensity-based target. So it allows emissions to rise, but only uh, aim at improving the uh, efficiency, basically improving the efficiency of all of the coal-fired power plants. And that is in contrast to the EU, where we have a declining cap, or we call declining total amount of allowances besides
0: differences in their trading scheme china and europe's market are
2: also a little different so in europe this year carbon price has doubled from 30 euro to above 60 euro and this means in europe has a fully liberalized power market so this cost will be uh, fully passed through like on top of fuel cost and into the power prices to end users And so, which means power prices will carry some uh, euros of this carbon costs, but in China this pass through is very weak. We have not seen it so far. I mean, the China's power markets liberalization has moved forward, but still the energy market in China is very regulated, so there is very limited carbon cost pass through. So. We would not see that. I think that's also part of the reason why China's trade price was around six, seven euros we have seen so far, so a fraction of what in the EU. Carbon prices
0: in China are very low, but yen thinks it's just a slow start.
2: One concern, of course, from policymakers is if when you introduce this new scheme, then you want the companies to be cooperative. You don't want to scare them away. And in addition, I think we cannot compare. China ETS in 2021 with EU ETS in 2021. We had compared compare with EU ETS in 2005. So with the trial phase of EU ETS, and there was so many trial and error in the first two years as well. So I think we have to expect a two or three years trial period for the China ETS. Less than three
0: weeks ago, everything changed. On October the 12th, China's National Development and Reform Commission made an important announcement and Yanqing was
2: tuning in from the other side of the world to watch. Yeah, it's a big day. I woke up at 2am to listen to NDRC press conference. So I have been always wondering what's going on, why China does not have this liberalised power market that I'm working with every day, uh, so now a big change, so NDRC announced uh, I mean, the full uh, document is called a notice on deepening co-fired tariff pricing, and it has a few key elements. The notice is very short, I mean, it's so condensed, it's one page and with, I think, thousands of information, and which will really pin down policy for the next five years. And so a major change, one is should get all of coal fired power generation into the market. So they are currently 70%. And second is to enlarge the range that price or market price is allowed to uh, float above or uh, below from the benchmark. So that is increased to 20%. So doubling the previous range. This was a huge
0: development for China's strictly planned economy. The domestic market for electricity which always had its prices, or what's known as tariffs, capped, had just been told to open up to market forces of supply
2: and demand. And third, I think this is the major change, and this is actually what I have not expected. is really the state planner now saying, we will abolish this catalog tariff for industrial and commercial users. I really did not expect this to happen against really under the circumstances of severe power shortage in China. So this really surprised me. And this will mean, so currently there are 44% of industrial and commercial power generation that is in the market. So they can, uh, and this market is covering both mid to long-term contracts, more like direct purchase uh, still. But this means this 44% will increase to 100%. So basically, what happened on 12th of October is China's is now accepts residential and agricultural power consumption, all the rest has to be in the market. The power price will decide by the market.
0: China's ongoing power crisis forced, or maybe just helped to bring forward a fundamental change in the rules for its electricity market. This added to the momentum, which has started back in September last year when China's President Xi Jinping made a pledge in a speech to
2: the United Nations. China had uh, made a carbon neutrality pledge. I think this is new. This is very new. And then this means that I think the policymaker they realize they can use a uh, market-based signal, market-based price signal, because power price, then when it can move up and down based on supply and demand and based on your costs, this will favour renewables. A floating power price, more flexible power pricing, will favour clean technology. The power crisis is the trigger, um, but what really made policymakers change mind is because of the carbon pledges, because the carbon peak and neutrality goal. This cannot be achieved if you don't have a, a mar- more market-based mechanism.
0: China pledged it would peak its carbon emissions by the year 2030. And remember, that's just over eight years away. Clouds of coal-powered smog have begun to part. The winds of change are finally blowing in favour of renewable energy. And we might just be seeing the first rays of light signalling the start of a new day for China's energy industry. While Yenqing was staying up late in Norway to hear a historic change in energy policy, here in Hong Kong, a fellow energy analyst was also watching developments with great interest. David Fishman is a manager with the Lantau Group, which is a consultancy focused on energy and sustainability, working across mainland China, Hong Kong, South Korea, Singapore and Australia. This is his take on the October 12th energy tariff announcement in China.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a big, it's a watershed moment. It's a, it's a mile marker, so to speak. Looking back to 2015, for quite a few years, you could mention 2015's document number nine, and everybody would know what you were talking about. But it's, it's equally as important, if not more important. It's a, it's a big development, and it's really going to shake up how China buys and sells power
0: a tectonic change in the world's last remaining plant economy. What has he been seeing since then?
1: Well, the most immediate short-term effect is going to be, we've already seen it actually, is the trading prices in the wholesale markets, right? We saw immediately reports out of Shandong, out of Jiangsu, that contracted volumes of power had immediately risen to meet that 20% cap that had been uh, relaxed, that had been allowed to rise. They were trading at something like 0.8, you know, percent higher than the baseline before. So uh, obviously, immediately, we saw generators were willing to generate at that price. And power users, at least in the short term, are willing to buy at that price.
0: In our previous podcast, we've heard that during the ongoing power outages, some people are happy to pay more for power. They just want the lights back on. David's seen a different version of this in China's manufacturing sector.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, when you're mid-production flow, you're 40% through filling a big order for your major supplier, and they're asking where it is and you can't get power to your facility. Your your primary concern is just finishing up your receipts for the end of the year, finishing up your orders for the end of the year. So, of course, they would be willing to pay maybe 30, 40, 50% for some of those energy intensive industries. But long-term, is that power price sustainable for their business? It's really hard to say. For for some of these extremely thin margin industries where power is uh, a significant part of their cost profile, it might not be competitive anymore. And so, yeah, of course, they're going to say, turn the power back on. I'll pay whatever you need in the short term. Long term, they have to do their own calculations.
0: So with the change to electricity prices, how has this changed the game for renewables? Has it become a more viable option?
1: Yeah, well, for, for a few years, you couldn't ask consumers to bear the true cost of renewable energy because it just wasn't competitive. And every, every country in the world has had to deal with that in one way or another. Right? You, you try to subsidize the production of renewable energy and subsidize the sale of it to consumers as much as possible. Because if you force them to compete you know, on, a, on a cost basis, of course, the consumer will not choose the more expensive, in many cases, less reliable energy. So we went from an era where we had lots of subsidies, where we had the feed-in tariffs, to what we had in the last year, which was direct competition, but coal was not so expensive. In that situation, it's it's a tough sell to build renewables. And now where we are now, where thermal energy has become so expensive, where coal prices and natural gas prices are soaring, it's it's ready to compete. Renewable energy is ready to fight in this marketplace and, and can do very well in this marketplace. So uh, all you have to do is is create a playing field that, at this point, doesn't even have to be tilted towards renewables. Just let them compete fairly, and in many cases in China, they'll be effectively cost-competitive against thermal.
0: So that's the consumer level. What about the big factories, the manufacturing hubs, the workshops that supply the world with cheap goods from China? How has China's power crisis affected the industrial sector?
1: I mean, if you're a big power user right now, your immediate thought is, how can I get my lights turned back on? And if your only option is to buy coal-fired power, which is expensive and being curbed and curtailed, you're saying, well, what else can I do? What are my other options? If I bought into three years of wind, can I be protected from future energy curbs? And in many cases, the answer is yes, that you actually would be protected from any issues arising next year so they're snapping up all the available long-term energy contracts one year two year three years whatever is available in the wholesale markets for power supply for next year they're going for it and with the prices trading freely as they are the price of wind and solar right now if you can even get your hands on some is pretty much close to the price it's right at the price of coal right now it's a it's a very much a seller's market right now so you have wind and solar volumes, if they're available, being bid in uh, at very high prices in the wholesale markets. And consumers saying, I'll take it, I'll buy it, I'll take any kind of power, but especially renewable energy looks like it might be less volatile going into 2022. So if if you call up generators right now and you ask for quotes on renewable volumes for next year, they either give you a very high price or they say, sorry, I'm sold out
0: just a day after the historic announcement from Beijing about changes to China's electricity tariff. China's President Xi Jinping made a video speech to the COP15 biodiversity conference in Kunming, in which he pledged that China would accelerate the development of massive solar farms being built in its deserts. But what about the domestic solar market? In the U.S. and Australia, more and more households are storing their own solar panels to lower their electricity bills. So what does China's solar sector look like? Is it only about the massive projects in remote areas of China?
1: Yeah, well, China has both. They have utility scale and then behind the meter or, or rooftop PV The utility scale projects, these are being developed, you know, 50 megawatts, 100 megawatts, big SOEs, sometimes IPPs, but mostly SOEs, way off in the desert somewhere, and connecting it back to wherever needs the power, often through UHV lines if it's really far out there in northwest China. But rooftop PV, or distributed PV, has really been taking off in the eastern provinces in the last few years. In fact, if you look at which provinces are top in China by capacity of installed solar, what you actually see is the eastern coastal provinces, which in the last few years have installed hundreds of megawatts, and gigawatts in some cases, of rooftop solar. And major institutional investors are even treating portfolios of distributed solar across an industrial park or across a city as a single asset that they can buy and sell so we've seen portfolios of distributed solar 150 megawatts 200 megawatts of individual rooftop solar facilities being uh sold, bought and sold as assets so china has both and it has both in a in a big way in a very scaled up for china size way
0: at the COP15 conference in Kunming, Xi Jinping also pledged he would accelerate the development of wind and solar power. How is it going to change China's power sector?
1: Well, every province right now is reviewing, drafting and finalizing their five-year plans, their provincial five-year plans. So a few provinces have released theirs already. And what they're calling for is obviously a lot more solar and wind but most of the provinces actually haven't given us a look at their five-year plan, and their build schedule yet. When all the provinces have finalized their five-year plans is when they'll all be rolled up into the national five-year plan. And that's what we'll know what the, the targets are. The targets are kind of reflexive in that way, in that the provinces said, okay, this is what we think we can do. Okay, that's now your objective. You better do it. So that's what we're looking at for. For example, Shandong, kind of a, a good... Indicator for the whole industry Shandong is quite typical of a coastal province a huge power user uh, and a net importer of power from other parts of the country and they Set their five-year plan in a way that I think we'll see mimicked across a lot of the other major power-consuming provinces Which was set a coal cap, you know, we're gonna have this much coal no more And it's higher than what they have right now. They have three and a half more years to build coal And then they say, we're going to have a bunch of solar, a bunch of wind. In Shandong's case, they committed to onshore and some offshore wind, I think. They committed to big solar projects from the draft version to the final version. They added another five gigawatts of solar target, uh, which was specifically for agrivoltaics, agri-solar, you know, putting uh, mounting your solar farm over fields, right, over agriculture or potentially mounting it over, uh, when they call it floating solar, it's not really floating in that sense, right? It's mounted over water. Uh, so you would have it over a fish farm, for example, or aquaculture in some way. So that's that's what Shandong has committed to in the next few years. How that will actually work is, you know, the provincial government will put out tenders for, for build sites and developers will go after them. And right now their return calculations for these projects are, must be pretty attractive because they're looking at wholesale market prices and saying, I get to sell into that with prices the way they are right now. That looks attractive to me.
0: So if you're thinking, what does five gigawatts actually look like? So am I. How big is a solar farm you need for that? How many PVs or solar cells need to be installed to generate five gigawatts of power?
1: Well, so a gigawatt at Say an average Western family home, that's uh, about a million homes, right? A gigawatt of energy is about a million homes. So when China says we're going to build five gigawatts of power, we're talking about entire mountainsides covered with PV, entire valley plains covered with PV, and five million Households now China per capita electricity usage is lower than Western countries So it's even more than a million homes, but of course, it's not going exclusively to homes It's being used for commercial and industrial facilities as well, but that's around the scale a gig equals a million Residential users consumption. So yeah, we're talking about vast swaths of the of the countryside of mine subsidence areas that are covered in solar. It's it's just it's a, it's a mind-boggling amount of solar.
0: This is where it's interesting to look at the examples set by China's former coal dealer, Australia, earlier this year. Even though the Australian prime minister is looking to be the laughing stock of COP26 for his flimsy pamphlet of policies on emission goals, the nation itself is getting on with the job of installing renewable energy. So much so that in September this year, Australia's main electricity grid reported a new record of having 60% of its energy generated by renewables. Could China hit that kind of target?
1: Mm, no, <laughs> not at all. That's, that's still decades off, I think. In, in, on an individual provincial basis, they're already there. Take Yunnan, for example. The 80% of their capacity is hydro. At any given moment, most of Yunnan is being powered by hydro. Similar for Sichuan, maybe Guangxi, places with massive hydro hydropower capacity installed, they are mostly uh, running on renewables right now and all the time. And other countries around the world can do that too. Like Brazil, for example, You know they have tons of hydropower. But for most of China, baseload means coal. A few provinces, you've got, you've got nuclear contributing to the mix uh, in the coast. But for baseload, I mean, most renewables aren't really properly set up for baseload, normally anyway. Uh, and they're not treated as baseload by the dispatch because they, they need to be paired with a lot of storage in order to even be considered in that way as baseload. So yeah, in China, baseload is still coal, nuclear, hydro, and it will be for a long time. They're setting the, the stage for, being, for allowing renewables to be treated as more base. Right now, for example, renewables penetration is only uh, 11, 12%, something like that, in terms of the capacity mix. Yet, every new build renewable project in the country has to install storage. Depends on the province, uh, 5, 10, 15, 20% of the project's capacity must be covered by storage. Now, that does not make sense when you only have 11% penetration of renewables. That's usually, energy economists and modelers will tell you, that's necessary when you're at about 25, 30% penetration. So they're clearly anticipating that future by mandating the storage installed right now.
0: The nuclear option hasn't been at the top of the list of announcements for China's shift away from coal. But it's an extremely important one. How does he compare China's nuclear industry with the U.S. and Europe right now?
1: China started out with nuclear and had kind of from the beginning the intention to make nuclear a big part of its energy mix. And even going back to the early 90s, if you look at some of the planning documents from the early 90s, when they had one or not even one yet, they said, "Okay, we're going to have 50, 100 gigawatts by a certain date. It was always intended to be a big part of the mix. It took a little bit of a hit as we went into the early 2010s. That was right after the Fukushima uh, accident in Japan. And the worldwide industry kind of took a step back and said, hang on, how how committed are we to our nuclear build? And in China's case, it was a two or three year pause to redo all of their safety margin evaluations for all of their sites and all of their planned sites. One of the things that came out of that was that they froze all of their inland projects, and that's why we have only coastal projects to this day. Although there are plenty of inland sites, some of them even started construction, they had site, you know, facility work done, and now they're just in long-term cold standby. But going into what kind of technology it was going to be, you had Westinghouse's AP1000 design was brought in, uh, big, big multinational deal, Uh, tons of political efforts were put into signing that deal. They were gonna build their first ever reactors in China, the kind of prototypes for the world. And those were the heady days of the pre-Fukushima nuclear renaissance that we were experiencing everywhere in the world. So many countries had big nuclear plans. And then after that, after Fukushima, only a few countries had big nuclear plans. So China still had big nuclear plans. And they waited for those AP-1000s to finish and they took a long time and they were expensive. And then a trade war popped up with the United States. And a lot of the equipment that goes into those AP-1000s has to be brought over from the US. And it got much more complicated to build these things. It took a lot more time. And their on-grid price was much higher than anticipated. And so China, quietly developing its own technology along the whole time, has, has strongly switched over into its, in its mind to what is going to be the predominant type of power generated from nuclear in China, and it's going to be Chinese indigenous technology. So throughout the 2010s, we saw new reactors under construction, a bunch of older technology, and those new reactors. By the end of the 2010s, however, pretty much all the old technology that was grandfathered into the pipeline had already moved through, had been constructed, had been finalized, and China said, all right, from now on, we're only building the new generation of technology, and we're mostly going to build our own. So starting from 2019, 2020, when China's first HPR 1000, its indigenous technology, was completed, they said, that's the new way. This is how we're going forward. In terms of capacity targets, they did miss their 2020 capacity target by a little bit. It was originally 80. They revised it down to 70. They revised it again down to 58. And in the end, they built 55, I want to say, or 53. It It was close. And what's in the construction pipeline would get it to 58 but they're a little bit delayed. Next milestones, 2025, 2030, they have some very ambitious milestones coming up in the future. And to hit those milestones, they're gonna to need to ramp up construction of nuclear in a way that has really not been seen before. You know, They're saying we need to build 10 gigawatts of nuclear this year, next year, and every year for the next 40 years. <laughs> to hit our 2030 milestone, to hit our 2060 carbon neutrality goal, that's the pace that they're committing to. I've never seen 10 gigs in a year though in China. And so they're gonna have to show me, they're gonna have to do it one time at least per one year and show me you have the manufacturing capacity, you have the regulatory capacity, you have uh, enough nuclear engineering graduates coming out of the schools. You know, each place, each plant employs three to 4,000 people. You're gonna build 500 of them? How many graduates do you have, right? So these are the, the scale questions that China is generally pretty good at dealing with, but just I, I wanna see it first. I don't think anybody makes money betting against China on big infrastructure projects. But still, I want to see it. I want to see it happen once before you convince me it's going to happen next year and every year for the next 40 years.
0: He just mentioned Fukushima. Ten years, enough time for people to consider nuclear power again, or at least for the conversation to be reopened.
1: Well, I mean, we saw countries that back in the early 2010s were saying nuclear, no way, no how. Sneakily, surprisingly, nuclear has reemerged on their national agenda, at least as a point that they're willing to consider. We've even seen Japan, and I can't tell you, I'm not an expert on Japan domestic politics, but we saw that even Japan has built out a decarbonization plan that assumes 30 gigawatts of operating nuclear. That means restarting 20 more plants, and that seemed impossible to even mention. That would be political, I mean, maybe it still is political suicide in Japan to mention such a thing, but that was impossible a few years ago. We've seen across big chunks of Europe various countries that were strongly anti-nuclear, or at least had no stance on it a couple years back, pushing now to categorize nuclear as green technology under the EU framework, under the relevant EU environmental frameworks, and presumably considering plans to include nuclear as part of their decarbonization strategies. So yeah, 10 years is enough time to Put some of the skeletons back in the closet i don't know like what the right metaphor here is but definitely that we still everybody still remembers the industry still remembers of course but that it's faded just enough from the public consciousness so that it's not so damning and not so dangerous for a politician to dare to suggest that nuclear might be part of your country's energy mix
0: so let's circle back and get some context here david mentioned the average power used by chinese households is much lower than that of a home, say, in Australia or the US. But as more and more Chinese people move into the middle class, more and more consumer devices are going to be added to their homes, and they're all going to need electricity. So how does he view the race between this rising affluence, the growing appetite for electric devices, and the push to find new sources of power?
1: Yeah, you know, a, a lot of the discussion over what type of power we use and what the price we pay for power is, has been centered on the commercial and industrial customers because they're the ones that are expected to take the the brunt of whatever new reality exists. That residential customers have by and large been spared from any type of rate hike or any type of demand for them to change their consumption behavior. Because all of this still has to happen against the the greater political climate of Xi's common prosperity and a moderately prosperous society and asking residential users to use less power or to slow their role on on moving into a middle class energy consumption lifestyle, right? You can say our country is 100% electrified, but for many places that means a light bulb and maybe a heating element to, to cook food on so you don't have to use biomass anymore and that moving from there to okay well now they're they're using washing machines and now they're going to be charging a lot of electronic devices and now they're going to be using electric heating in the winter instead of burning biomass that's that's something that they're not going to ask the residential sector to shoulder the burden of so if pain happens in the economy it's always going to be directed at those most in in the eyes of the kind of public policymakers and stakeholders, those most well-equipped or most expected to take the hit, the commercial and especially the industrial sector. And so, yeah, that we will not allow power usage and our decarbonization drive to ever be directly felt by our beneficiaries of our other drive, the common prosperity, a moderately prosperous society, and that those two have to exist at the same time.
0: COP26 starts this weekend and runs for 12 days. This is David's forecast for what China will bring to the conference, thanks to an unexpected document found on the Chinese internet.
1: So coming up for COP26 at the end of this month, uh, which Xi Jinping will not be attending, he hasn't been attending anything outside of China for, well, since the pandemic began. But a couple days ago on the Shanxi provincial government website, it appears they accidentally leaked, it it might be falsified, but it would be a weird thing to falsify, a pre-version of China's commitments for the next COP conference and it was deleted from the provincial website a couple hours later, but photocopies and scans had already made their way across the Chinese internet. And I've seen a couple, and some interesting new commitments were added to that. And if it turns out those are exactly the commitments that we see at the end of the month, maybe it was supposed to be a big surprise. But a couple interesting commitments that 2025 will be the peak and plateau of China's oil usage, which had previously just never been mentioned before, so the oil peak, that 2060, more details on what 2060 carbon neutrality looks like, that it will be specifically 80% non-fossil. And so there's still 20% fossil in the mix in 2060, and it has been neutralized in some way. It has been canceled out in some way, and I don't know what you how you do that. You plant a bunch of trees or something, but that's the that's the the big plan. And then there was a third item: banning the use of dispersed or or free coal. Uh, what you'll see in a lot of smaller Chinese cities, especially in the north in the winter, is chunks of coal being used for for residential heating, and that will be completely prohibited. Also, some more granular details about the coal phase out. It's still going to be a 2025 coal peak, but that we will be accelerating the decrease of use, (laughs) accelerate the decrease of coal so that whatever was going to be the ramp down to 2025, it will ramp down faster, I guess. So those were some of the more interesting things from this strangely leaked document that went out and then was officially deleted. But there are still copies floating around on Chinese internet right now. It was dated at the end of September. So it looks like an internal work plan that has been already sent around to the provinces for them to consider and prepare for in anticipation of an official announcement at the end of this month for what would be China's new NDCs.
0: So what about after COP26?
1: Well, uh, well, I'd love to see that they're gonna do exactly what they said in that supposedly leaked document. I mean it, those those goals were not super ambitious versus what was already on on the table. I don't see strong evidence that what has happened in the last month and a half, two months, in China has strongly changed the trajectory of China's decarbonization strategy. It may have accelerated some certain aspects of it that were already in planning. Power sector reform was always closely tied to power sector decarbonization, for instance, and accelerating the reforms, to me, looks like you're accelerating the decarbonization plan as well. I think China has had its plan set for a while and against international pressure, against international tongue wagging and finger wagging, they're pretty much just going to do what they said they're going to do or try very hard to get there. So I'm not looking for, for big changes at a COP26 if they commit to, to more stringent, more accelerated, more aggressive targets and timelines than they had before. I welcome it. I think it's great. But right now we've already got our 2025 coal peak, our 2030 carbon peak, and 30 years of somehow figuring out after that, how you get to neutrality by, by 2060. And I feel like if China takes additional climate or emissions commitments, it would be more detail-oriented. It would be filling in more of the spaces instead of changing the big picture, instead of changing the big milestone dates or the numbers associated. It would be just committing to individual actions, like no more burning of, of, uh, of scattered coal. Or I'm trying to find the right way to express sanmei. Uh, like sand distributed or or non consolidated like it's literally those chunks of coal that they just burn in, in in little little boilers, little furnaces in homes to keep warm. That you have to you have to ban that.
0: With everything that's happening right now, COP 26, the coal crisis, the new market regulations, and the possibility of banning coal burning in residential areas, even though it's the start of the heating season. Does this mark a turning point in China's history?
1: Well, it definitely is the first time that coal's status has been challenged. Right? Everybody always knew it was dirty or undesirable, but, but there was always a but. But it's reliable and cheap. And now for the first year ever in the consciousness of policymakers, of generators, of power users, they go, but is it? But is it Really? It could get expensive it could be unreliable mismanagement of coal supply and certainly there was mismanagement of coal supply could lead to coal being expensive and unreliable well that that stinks is there any other type of power out there that might be a better long-term fit that gives us less exposure to risks i want some of that contract me for some some renewables contract me for some nuclear because I, I know how much it's going to cost year after year after year, and it's unreliable, sure, but I, even when it's unreliable, I know how much that costs. So that's that's a turning point, I do think. And that the reforms that have been put into place reflect, reflective of the, the new zeitgeist, I think. I guess that maybe that's un- redundant, zeitgeists are always current, right? There is no new zeitgeist, but it is reflective of something that wasn't possible before or that just wouldn't have made sense to a lot of people before.
0: That's David Fishman from the Lentau Group. And that's all we have for the first part of our coverage of the COP26 conference in Glasgow. You can read all of our analysis, our deep dive features, our reporting of the conference, the related geopolitics, science and technology at our website scmp.com. My name is Holly Chick. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.